Genesis chapter 6 as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, beginning tonight in verse 9. I'm going to read the passage to you and then we're going to jump into it together. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it and you shall make it with lower second and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them." Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. It's interesting in this passage that Noah is described as a righteous man. So when I see that, it's obvious that Noah stuck out in the world in which he lived at this time. So much so that when God was going to rain his wrath down upon the earth, by way of a worldwide flood, that Noah was the one that he chose and his family to take the human race forward in the great reset of creation. So my question is, that we're going to answer tonight, why was Noah a righteous man? Because I want to be a righteous man, don't you? Or, or a righteous woman? Wouldn't you like God to look upon you and say that? Ultimately, we learn that it is by faith in God that Noah was found righteous. And his righteousness was demonstrated through his obedience to God. It wasn't his obedience that made him righteous. It was his faith in God. And his faith in God is what was demonstrated by his obedience to God's commands. Noah and the flood are a precursor to what will take place one day at the end of the age. The world we live in today is corrupt. Maybe not as corrupt as in Noah's day, but one day God will once again pour out His wrath upon the earth 
But instead of judging the earth with, with, uh, the earth with water, the earth will be refined by fire. And so let's look at Noah, the righteous man, in the first two verses here, verses 9 and 10. It says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Moses shifts the focus now to Noah and his family. Notice what's present and not present in this genealogy. He says these are the records of the generations of Noah. It says Noah and his three sons. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives are all that will survive from humanity after the flood. This verifies other Bible texts that only eight people survived God's worldwide judgment. The text attributes three characteristics to Noah that I want to point out to you, and then we're going to apply those to ourselves. First, it says that Noah was a righteous man. He was an upright man who lived according to God's standards of holiness. This doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. The Bible says nobody's perfect, except, of course, Jesus. It means that he exercised faith in God, which God credited toward him as righteousness. Hebrews 11.7 describes this. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Noah was a righteous man, and he was called a righteous man because he exercised faith in God. Number two. Verses 9 and 10 declare that Noah was blameless in his time. That word in Hebrew means he was a man of integrity, that he abstained from iniquity. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, but it does mean that he exercised faith in God and maintained his fidelity and purity in a world filled with people who despised God and embraced wickedness. So Noah wasn't perfect, but he lived a lifestyle of obedience to God's commands in his life. Noah's neighbors could not blame him for their deaths in the flood because Noah actually tried to save them from that certain death. How do we know that? We find it in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, talking about God, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And the first Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says, In which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, speaking of Jesus, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. These two texts indicate one of the reasons why Noah was found blameless among his generation is he was blameless because he walked with God. He was a man of integrity. He was also one who could not be blamed by the people who died because he preached to them about God's impending wrath and judgment. Those same people rejected 
Noah's message and God's grace. Number three, Noah also walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, I would say walking with God means three things. It could mean a lot of other things, but specifically in this part of the text, I I see three things. One, Noah depended on God. He trusted in Him. He, He depended on God to take care of him, to meet his needs. He listened to him. He followed God's direction even when it required for Noah to take a step of faith. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. What does it mean to walk with God? Number two, Noah spent time with God. What do we see thus far? We see Noah, a righteous man, hearing from God, communing with God in fellowship, hearing God's word. So he spent time with him. He prayed and spoke with God. God was actively a part of his life. When when God came to Noah and gave him instructions about what to do, Noah didn't say, who are you? He knew who he was. He had a relationship with him. He walked with him. Number three, the fact that Noah walked with God means that Noah obeyed God. You can't walk with someone and not share a common goal, right? So if we all finished up here, and uh, tonight's milestone night, right? So that's right, Jack, right? Okay, good. I'm glad because we're all going back there. We have to find some food. So tonight's milestone, we're all going to go back to the fellowship hall. We, all, we want you all to come, and we're going to eat. And um, we said it's milestone, and I said, walk with me to the fellowship hall, and we're going to have some food. You can't both walk with me to the fellowship hall and walk out the front door, right? You can't say, I'm going to walk with you and then go that way. That would be a lie, right? The fact that Noah, it says here that Noah walked with God, that means that Noah obeyed God. That means the direction God is going is the same direction Noah's going. He did what God asked him to do through their verbal and spiritual communication. Now, we can take a minute and just stop and apply that part of Noah's life to ourselves. Noah is characterized as a man possessing three godly traits. He was a righteous man, he was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. Now, how is that possible for us? Through Jesus. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. I'm going to talk about that on Easter. That's the, that is the spoiler alert. That's what I'm preaching on on Easter morning. Jesus provides the way for us to have a relationship with God, to walk with Him. We can be righteous through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We can be blameless through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to us the word of reconciliation. So we too can be like Noah and found blameless, but it is not going to be done through our good works. It is done through the imputation or the planting of Jesus' righteousness upon us. Christ's imputed righteousness 
That's a fancy theological phrase for the fact that Jesus died on the cross when we, when, and His blood was shed as an atonement for sin. When we turn from our sin and look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, asking Him for forgiveness, His blood is applied to us. So when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because I am not a righteous person on my own. Are you? We're made righteous by Jesus. And so we're able to be called blameless. Not sinless. Blameless. Because our relationship with God has been reconciled through the blood of Christ. And third, those two things through Jesus and His sacrifice, give us the opportunity to walk with God. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So that's a command from Paul to believers. We received Christ Jesus as Lord. I've done that. I hope you have too. Because of that, He can tell us to walk with Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, we got this word right here from Jesus, from God. And inside of it, all kinds of commands, all kinds of of instructions about how we're to live and how God wants us to interact with each other and with Him. So walking with Him is obeying the Word. Now, we're capable of doing that because Jesus provided a way for us to understand the Word and to follow it. So we can walk with God. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's an invitation to draw near to walk with God. And, the, and it's sort of a double-sided invitation promise. Draw near to God and guess what happens? God draws near to you. Draw near to God, believers. God draws near to you. It's awesome. And then Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We've been given an opportunity, according to Romans 6, 4, to walk in newness of life, to walk with God as a changed person. All right. The problem with creation at this time what we see next in the text, beginning in verse 11, is that creation is corrupt. It's corrupted. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. These two verses explain why God judged the earth and sent a catastrophic flood that killed almost every living person and animal. For two reasons he does this. First, how many times does he use the word corrupt in those first two in verse 11 and 12? One, two, I have three. Anybody have a different translation with more times? What do you think that Moses is trying to tell us about the earth? That's corrupt, right? He used the word in my translation three times. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. The earth is corrupt. 
The Hebrew word for that is shehet. Shehet. It means to be marred or ruined. This implies that the object that's corrupted is now useless and purposeless. Specifically in this context, it describes the ruined, immoral state of humanity. I think of it like this. What were shoes made to do? Protect your feet. What else? Like to walk in, right? Or run in? Give you some cushion? Keep your feet warm? None of y'all would think about that because we're in Key West. The Iowa people probably would say keep your feet warm if it was December. They would say to keep your feet warm. I had this old pair of shoes. And man, when I bought those things, they were shiny and blue and they had cool sig- little symbols on them and and man they were they were just great and super comfy and i wore them and wore them and then they started getting kind of dingy so i started wearing them to cut the grass do y'all do a grass do you have a pair of grass cutting shoes a couple of you do okay well that's good so i moved into the grass and then in my economy of shoes they go to grass and then after i have them in the grass for a while then they move to like water shoes like salt water shoes because once the shoes get moved to saltwater jack, that's kind of the end of the road, right? So I had them as my saltwater shoes, and I wore them to fish and dive and all that kind of stuff and, and swim and all that. And then, and then I noticed they started to squeak, and then parts started to fall off of them. And finally, one day, I went to put them on, and like the sole just like separated. Right? Those shoes no longer fulfilled their purpose. They weren't protecting my feet. I really couldn't walk in them. They would actually, they might hurt me if I tried to use them for something. That's what the word corrupt means. Corrupted. They were were ruined. They had a purpose. Now they were no longer fulfilling that purpose. That was the world at this time. So it is speaking, this part of the text is describing the sin of the world and the wickedness. but, But it's really driving even deeper to that. And, and what God is lamenting and what God is sad about is think, we're going to go over this in a minute, but just think back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And God created the earth and He created everything in it. And he created animals and plants and, and Adam and Eve and He looks at everything on day 6 and what's He say? Good. Very good. Now He looks at the world and everything in it. And earlier, earlier in this chapter, it said it just broke his heart. Why? Because it was corrupt. It wasn't what God created. It wasn't what he intended it to be. That, that's, what, that's what Moses is getting across here in this part of the text. Now, then he's going to describe why is it corrupt. Look at verse 11. Because it's filled with violence. You see, God designed humanity for a purpose. We were designed to glorify Him, to worship and glorify God. That's what we're made for. Now, sin corrupted humanity to such a degree that they were no longer fulfilling their purpose. They were doing the opposite of that. They were living completely contrary to their God-ordained purpose. They were corrupted. It says there in that text that the earth was corrupt. This describes or indicates the global impact of humanity's wickedness on the whole earth. 
He didn't just say like this person or, or this people, you know, this person's son and his family were corrupt. This is the earth. He's speaking of all of humanity. That's devastating and horrific. Everything and everyone on the earth was ruined by sin. It says there, second, that the earth was filled with violence. That word violence means strong, fierce, destructive force resulting in acts that maim, destroy, kill, often implying lawlessness, terror, and a lack of moral restraint. So the whole earth is filled with that. That sounds pretty horrible. Imagine what that was like. Murder, theft, and crime would have been common. As is always the case in civilizations where violence are a way of life, the elderly, women, and children would have been the victims of the most heinous crimes, more than likely at the hands of men. Think about this. Do you feel like there's a lot of violence in the U.S.? Yes. Okay, so in 2019, there were 1.2 million violent crimes in the U.S. So that made the crime rate 367 per 100,000 people. That's crime rate of 0.4%. So we don't want any kind of, of um, we don't want any kind of violent crime, but that is actually a pretty good crime rate. That's pretty low. Imagine living in a world where the crime rate is like 100% or close to it. Imagine living in a world where the whole world is full of violent crime all the time, everywhere. That's what's being described here. Man, things have really changed since God created the world at this point, haven't they? I mean, think of what God said in Genesis 1.31. This is right after God created everything. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. Now, for something, for God to call something very good, you know that it was very good, right? This means that everything that God designed was fulfilling its purpose. This is before the fall, so everything's perfect. Everything's amazing. Everything's very good. Noah's day, by Noah's day, everything had changed. By Noah's day, God looked at his creation. Verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Imagine the sadness and the grief that this inflicted upon God. Just a few generations, it went from very good to violence. So I'm not surprised that God brought judgment upon the earth. Now, Let's fast forward to today, 2021. The moral state of this world is not getting better. We're not in like an upward curve. Things aren't going to get better. In fact, it will continue to decline and become increasingly more violent until Jesus comes back. How do I know that? Well, I know it because the Word says it. Matthew 24, 37 to 38. Jesus is speaking about the period of time before he returns. He says the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. What was it like in Noah's day? Violence, corrupt, wickedness. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What else was it like in Noah's day? Noah preached to the people a message of repentance, and what did the people do? Despised it. Now, thankfully, that's not the case during this age because people do repent and follow Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. I want to direct your attention also to 2 Peter 3, 3-7. For this, first of all, that in the last days, that's these days and the days before Jesus returns, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. So he's talking about Noah's day. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So he's saying there is, too, a judgment coming like the judgment in the day of Noah. Only the judgment will not come by a worldwide flood. It will come by fire. So what do we learn from that? Beware of the promises from anyone who declares that they have a method to make the earth a perfect place. Or to increase the time for which the earth will exist. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. We are in those days, and the difficulty is going to grow more intense. Matthew 24.36, But of that day and hour no one knows. So if anyone promises to you that they received a message from God and they know when Jesus is going to come back, say, Oh, I know, Matthew 24.36. In that day or of that day or hour no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Thankfully, and I'm so thankful for this, we have hope. And so do all people who live today. All people, any people, can repent and be saved. They can receive God's grace. They can flee the wrath to come through the blood of the Lamb. All was not lost for those living in Noah's day because our God is a gracious God. So let's move on in our text. God, even though He looked upon the world and all of it was wicked and corrupt, and filled with violence, what we see here and often forget is that God is gracious and good and filled with love and compassion. So He looks upon the earth and, and compelled to pour out His wrath and yet offers grace because He's a gracious God. Amen? Verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled of violence because of them. And behold, I am going to destroy them with the earth. So God announced to Noah that He will destroy all people upon the earth because of humanity's wickedness. 
In fact, all the earth created life will endure God's wrath because of humanity's sin. This is because we are intricately connected to God's creation. We affect creation by the way that we live. Genesis 3, 17-19 describes this. This is directly after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Also think about Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, remember that word, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. All of creation suffers under humanity's sin. God is gracious, however, and His plan includes the rescue of humanity and the restart of creation. This is God's command to Noah. Verse 14, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. All the while that Noah is building this ark, he's also preaching a message of repentance to the people. He and seven of his family entered, so the people rejected it. But I want to rely on the ministry answers in Genesis to describe what the ark was like for you guys. They have a wonderful... They have a wonderful museum up in Kentucky that we're going to go visit this summer. If you want to be a part of it, you can talk to Miss Bim or me or Darlene. Um, But they have a good description of the ark, so I'm going to read that to you. Noah's ark was a massive ship built at God's command that saved Noah, his family, and two of every kind of land animal from the global flood that took place 4,350 years ago. It was 510 feet long. 85 feet wide and 51 feet high and easily housed the several thousand animal kinds that God brought to Noah. Scripture does not elaborate about the shape of Noah's ark beyond those superb overall proportions, the length, breadth, and depth. Since the Bible gives proportions consistent with those of a true cargo ship, it makes sense that it would look and act like a ship too. The ark was made from gopher wood, we don't really know what kind of wood that is. Some scholars think um, it was like cypress, but we don't know what gopher wood is. Could have been a special wood that since has uh, ceased to exist on the earth. It had rooms inside. It was covered with pitch-like substance inside and out that probably was waterproofing. The scale of the ark was huge, yet remarkably realistic when compared to the largest wooden ships in history. The proportions are even more amazing. They're just like a modern cargo ship. 
Now, what's interesting is in 1993, a group of Korean scientists did a study of the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Dr. Sion Hong was a world-class ship uh, leader of a world-class ship research center in South Korea. His team compared 12 halls of different proportions to discover which was the most practical. No, no hall shape was found to significantly outperform the 4,300-year-old biblical design described in the book of Genesis. In fact, the ark's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified, rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. The research team found that the proportions of Noah's ark carefully balance the conflicting demands of stability, which keeps it from capsizing, of comfort, which is safekeeping for the cargo and the people and animals inside, and strength. In fact, the ark has the same proportions as the modern cargo ship. The study also confirmed that the ark could handle waves as high as 100 feet. So let's continue in the text. Verse 17. God said, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. God will cause a flood to come upon the earth and every air-breathing, land-dwelling animal will die. Verse 18, God continues, But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and you will keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food that is edible and gather it yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Again, in a very interesting article, Answers in Genesis describes the gathering of these animals. The most important scriptural clue stems from the Hebrew word min, and that's what we translate in my text as kind. English Bibles usually word, use the word kind. I don't know what's in yours, but it's going to be the Hebrew word min. It's, it's used 31 times in the Old Testament. These uses are clear enough to, are, uh, are, are, we have enough uses of the word to render a clear meaning here. Noah brought males and females aboard the ark for the purpose of reproducing after the flood in order to preserve the lineage of each kind of animal. Nevertheless, based on um, the positive evidence of this process called hybridization, the kind level, based on how we know that animals reproduce, is currently best approximated at the level of family. At the level of family. Hence, Noah, when he took two of every kind inside the ark, he likely took just two members of each group of creatures that we would label today as the animals of the family. When we consider the fossil record and calculate how many families or kinds of animals existed at that time, we estimate that there were approximately 1,700 kinds of animals that were brought on Noah's Ark. More if we count terrestrial invertebrates like fleas, ticks, and flies. 
and mosquitoes. But, of course, they could have hitched a ride along with the animals that came on, right? If they're whatever was in the dog family, I'm sure it had fleas. Would have been nice, I'm just saying, if maybe they didn't make the trip. But that's God's will. So there would have been plenty of room for them. And when we, uh, in the article that I, I was uh, explaining to you, um, when they consider 1,700 kinds and the dimensions of the ship, Noah's Ark would have been plenty large to bring all of them on there and then some. So, what's interesting and, and what I think we can apply to this part of the text is when God described to Noah how to build the ark, he was very specific about how to build it. And you know, there's something that he didn't tell Noah to put on the ark. A wheel or a rudder. The best I can tell, there was no way for Noah to control where the ark went. So Noah built this ginormous wooden ship that was actually bigger than ships well after that age. Builds this huge boat. Takes all these animals on the boat with him. There's going to be a worldwide flood with no ability whatsoever to control where the boat's going to go. Folks, that's a step of faith, right? First, a step of faith to build the boat, but we don't think about the fact that he got into the boat and sealed it and was just going to wait and trust the Lord. That also is a step of faith. That boat was going to go where God wanted it to go. And so he trusted the Lord with that. It reminds me of the church planters that I worked with in Jacksonville. <clears throat> so, you, you all know that I used to work with a lot of refugees there. And they would come over, and um, they would come to Jacksonville, and then, and then if they were, um, if among that group there were pastors, um, they, the, the refugee group would introduce me to those pastors because they would want to talk to me, and, and I would help them find churches or help them get started in their ministry. And so this is the amazing part is these pastors, a lot of times they became pastors in refugee camps. Like they were just Jesus followers and all of a sudden they kind of found themselves leading this group of people to follow Jesus. They were sharing their faith and people got saved and all of a sudden inside of a refugee camp they got a church. And the church said, you're our pastor. And they're like, okay, I guess I'm your pastor. And, um, and I would meet them when they finally got to the U.S. and they would come to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. And I'd say, oh, tell me about it. And they would tell me the whole story that I just told you. What was very interesting is they would come to me and they would say, you know, God is so good to me. He brought me here. And these are people that had just landed in the United States with a Walmart bag with all their possessions. That's what they owned. And they're telling me that God is so good to them with a Walmart bag full of clothes. And I'm like, praise God, he's awesome. And then they would tell me after that, God, God made me a pastor when I was in my refugee camp, so I want, to, I want to be a pastor here. So I've got this group of people that came with me from the camp, and now we need a place to go to church, like to meet. And I would help them connect with a Baptist church, and we'd start a new Baptist church in their language, and they would pastor. So let me just ask you, if you were a refugee... 
And many of them were separated from their family or maybe they came over and they like had their wife with them or maybe one child and a wife and a child was at home or maybe it was them and their wife and their kids were at home and things happened they couldn't control and that's what they got. If that was your life and all your possessions were in a Walmart bag and you didn't have a job and didn't really know what you were going to do, would you really care about being a pastor of a church? That'd be tough. I'm a pastor, and I feel like that might be at the bottom of my list. I would be most concerned about food, you know, uh, a home, a job, my family who's back home. I, I, it would be easy to say, well, I don't really have time to be a pastor. I've got to get my kids. And these guys are in my office taking a step of faith because God told them to do it. And I think that was a blessing in my life to meet with those folks. And sometimes it would be a group, you know, it would be the, the pastor and, and some of the women that helped lead the church and, and other men, and it would just be maybe a group of ten, and that's, that, that was them. But they were going to start a church, and they were going to proclaim the gospel. And they did that by taking a step of faith and obedience to God. That's what Noah did. He took a step of faith and obedience to the Lord. He trusted God to take care of him through the journey. How does Noah respond to God's command? Well, the answer is found in verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Wouldn't that be a great thing to put on your gravestone? Could you think of anything better? Put your name where Noah's name is. Thus Oscar did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Is there anything more honorable than for that to be said about you? Noah was a righteous man because he took a step of faith and trusted God. He trusted God for his future to see him and walk with him through the journey. Three questions and I'm going to close. I want to invite our team, if Brandon Bim, if you'll come up to the front. Will you be called a righteous person? A person who lives by faith in God and trusts in Jesus. Will you stand out in a sinful world? Will you stand out in a world of wickedness and be, be known as someone who walks with God? Will you depend on God? Will you spend time with God? Will you obey God? Will you preach to a fallen world who desperately needs to be saved? Finally, will you walk with God? Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to have a time to respond to the sermon and a time of invitation for you to pray and talk to the Lord. And I want to compel you to take a stand and a step of faith. Trust in the Lord for your future. Heavenly Father, I pray over this time. I pray that your word is, has deeply penetrated into our hearts and that you'll help us to leave this place to take a step of faith to be righteous people who trust in you and proclaim the message to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.